Hello, curious minds and bodies. Today, Rosie Puloka is sharing her perspective on how we can literally and metaphorically use our bodies to reach across cultural borders. Rosie is a dance movement therapist, trauma yoga specialist, and counselor in the Chicago area. Rosie uses relational movement with intersectional feminist and transpolitic approaches to work through resistance and recuperation with people from a variety of cultural backgrounds. Now, if you have no idea what those terms mean, don't worry, I didn't either, and Rosie will explain them in the beginning of the episode. Actually, before our interview, I admitted to Rosie that I've been habitually ignorant about multiculturalism. Maybe it's just been easier for me to continue being naive as a white, privileged individual, but I don't think I'm alone in this. Maybe you relate to me in this way and are looking to become more aware and open-minded about this topic. Maybe you're already there and just don't know how to turn your awareness into action. Either way, I think the world could use a little guidance about how to build empathy for ideas and people outside our own comfort zones, even if we don't fully agree with them. Okay, rant over. Thanks for listening. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. To meet you. Yeah, it's good to meet you too, finally. <laughs> Officially. You've shared with me that you've tackled the majority of your work through intersectional feminist approaches and guided by critical trans politics. Can you tell us about these frameworks? Yes, of course. Those are some big words and big concepts. So let's let's break that down a bit. Intersectionality is a term that was first introduced in 1989 by renowned law scholar and critical race theorist Kimberly Crenshaw. And the term was basically a metaphor to represent the intersection or collision of overlapping dynamics of oppression. So black women, for example, don't just have to face racial discrimination. They also experience gender discrimination or violence. Right. So it's compounded and it's doubled. And the same goes for women of color, immigrant women, trans women, gay women, women with disabilities. I mean, the list goes on and on. So intersectional feminism is the opposite of white feminism, which assumes that feminism is supposed to look and act a certain way or else it's not feminism. So white feminism is a white singer calling Beyonce anti-feminist, for example, because it doesn't look a certain way or white feminism celebrates the centennial of women's right to vote, completely forgetting or not caring about the fact that black women will still have to wait another 40 years to celebrate. So intersectional feminism is inclusive, um, not because it's catchy and cool, but because it sees and honors and respects and values more than just whiteness. Intersectional feminism knows that this country was, well, stolen first and foremost, but second, (laughs) built on the backs of women of color with no recognition and often no appreciation. Critical trans politics was established by um, a lawyer and a writer and professor named Dean Spade. And critical trans politics, in Dean's words, aims to chart the current trajectory of trans politics. One that he argues is recapitulating the limits of leftist, lesbian and gay, feminist and anti-racist politics that have centered legal recognition and equality claims also demands more legal recognition and inclusion, seeking instead to transform current logics of state, civil society, security, and social equality. 
So before we get all excited about a bill or a law or an advance, let's consider the facts and the gaps and let's see who's left out and who was pushed to the margins. So if we take an issue like healthcare, if we were to say, okay, queer, trans, poor, immigrant folks have minimal access to quality healthcare, then the leftists, like lesbian and gay, often white solution would be to legalize same-sex marriage, to allow people with health benefits from their jobs to share with same-sex partners. So at first that might be like, that's great. That sounds like a wonderful solution. But then you're like, wait a minute, hold on. Let me really, let me look at this a little bit more closely. First of all, you need citizenship and money and an already good paying job with benefits to even participate in that logic at all. So a critical queer and trans politic approach would be to engage in Medicaid and Medicare activism, to fight for universal health care, to fight for trans health care and to protest deadly medical neglect of people in state custody. So critical trans politics is basically saying, look, the system isn't broken because it was never supposed to work. The law doesn't protect all of us. And so why are we putting all of our effort towards changing the law and doing law reform when what we could do is spread some of our energy towards building our communities from the ground up and creating, well, for one, internal community alternatives to expanding punishing powers. But basically, how can we respect the fact that rights trickle up, it doesn't trickle down. So if you protect like the upper echelon of folks, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be supporting like some of the most vulnerable people. So if instead you start at the bottom and protect those folks who are like the most vulnerable, then of course it's going to trickle up because it's going to support everyone who's less vulnerable than that. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot. And I was thinking, yeah. wow, that's <laughs> that's lot. amazing that you include all of that in your work and that you've come from that approach. Yeah, well, and some people might actually be acting from intersectional feminist approaches and from a critical trans politic without knowing it, right? Like, and this all, that's like a lot of words and a lot, <laughs> a lot of like stuff. But what it comes down to, like what it actually looks like is me going into a room and having a new group and not saying like, Hey ladies, mm. you know, right. So like all of that might just condense down to like saying like, Hey everyone, some, some other people might do that and be like, what's critical trans politics? Like what's intersectional feminism? Right. So knowing those things doesn't mean that only knowing that that's going to be the only way to have an inclusive practice. That's not what that means, but it definitely mm. informs it what it looks like in practice is much more simple and kind of less heady. Yeah. I like how you just included those simple examples. And I'm curious if you have some more examples that are simple and maybe not so simple as well. Yeah. Those frameworks are, are kind of, they're more just like my backbone or my lens. And that translates to not basing your experientials off of a certain kind of body or not making any assumptions in your questions if you're asking any, like during an experiential. So, you know, if we're processing in a group, I'm, I'm probably not going to say, well, when you get home, maybe you can try, right? Because I don't know if you have a home. Like, I'm not sure. Are you jumping around? Are you homeless? Are you on the run, right? So, like, are there any assumptions in your questions? And is there a way to kind of open it up more so that people can interpret it however they need to interpret it? I'm also really cautious with LMA language because fighting versus indulging qualities can get really problematic. 
when you're looking at different cultures and especially when you're looking at different races, right? Like black women are often labeled as angry and aggressive. And why isn't it seen as protective and strategic, Hmm. right? Like why can't it be called indulging and surviving qualities? Like, (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting conversation to have, but I think, you know, the way that this stuff shows up in my work is just saying, okay, how is the way that I talk now? And how is the way that I show up now? And let me look at all that. And is anyone getting pushed out by what I'm saying? So it takes some time, right? To like, to look at how did I come to speak like this? And I've screwed up all the time. Like I made some major mistakes and gotten really called out and great. Good. You know what I mean? Like it's me learning and I'm like, okay, well get back up, brush my shoulders off. Like it's really okay. But yeah, so I would say it's more kind of in the nuance, like it's in the language. It's how I, it's how I interact with people. It's less about like specific strategies or techniques, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that definitely helps a lot. Mm. Um, you, you had also mentioned that you aim to build relational movement through these approaches. Mm-hmm. So what are some examples of, of that if they're different? Yeah. So when I say relational movement, I think one of, one of the things I at least envision in my mind is what is the act of reaching out and reaching across a boundary? So if you have two folks who might look at each other like, oh, they're different and I'm not quite sure how to approach them or I'm not quite sure how to interact with them or like a lot of fear stuff comes up. Right. And fear oftentimes is isolating and it usually takes people apart simply because like I just don't know and so that means I'm scared so relational movement is saying like hey let's reach across the borders of fear like let's reach across the boundaries and like connect in some way and I think that's a lot of what hopefully I mean I wasn't actually at the women's march but hopefully that was like some of the stuff that was happening is that a bunch of people who weren't necessarily even protesting the same issues there are a lot of folks that I'm sure that was their first protest ever It's my hope that there was some sort of reaching across relationally through movement, literally putting one step in front of the other, walking side by side with somebody that you may be like, I don't know what this person's about because like I've never hung out with someone who looks like this or like maybe I've never even seen someone who looks like this. You know what I mean? Reaching across some unknown to make connection for the sake of connection and what can come from connection and like that bond across fear is inevitably going to be stronger than a bond made in sort of like similarity. Hmm. I'm glad you brought up the march. It sounds like you consider these events aligned with your goals to build more relational movement between women of different backgrounds. And I wanted to get your perspective from a dance movement therapy perspective. How can these women carry over the power of these events and relating and reaching across these boundaries of fear and deepen that process throughout their daily lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you said it in the beginning of the, the interview. I mean, I think one of the first ways to start is just awareness, right? I think if you ask any group of people, no matter who it is, what do you wish that this other group would do for you? It would probably be like to be seen to be heard, right? And in order to see and in order to hear, we have to wake up. And like waking up is a process of like building awareness. So 
I think that something that folks can do in their everyday life is begin to see and hear and listen to the people that you may not have seen and heard and listened to before. So that happens through educating ourselves, right? Like the internet is fantastic with quick, fast um, education. I mean, if, if you were to go onto YouTube and be like, what is intersectional feminism? You'd get like hundreds of videos, right? You should probably click on someone who looks like a person of color, right? And finding out like, what is your intention? If what you want is for, for example, for like women to rise up and start standing up for each other and to unite like, what does that look like? And like, what do you mean by that? What do you really, really want? Because right now, it honestly, it's like kind of shifted to be like really cool to be an intersectional feminist. And it's like, I support this and I support that. And it's like, yeah, totes. What do you mean? And like, <laughs> like, what do you mean by that? And how does that show up in your daily life? And who knows, like for some, maybe it's some people have domestic workers to help them take care of their kids. Maybe you have a little bit more patience with folks who like, I don't know, maybe they don't speak English. Maybe you start to see students in a different light than you've normally seen. Maybe you're like, wait a minute, let me pause. Am I reading this communication as one thing, but it's actually not that at all. So I think I think awareness can be really broad and I think its application can show up in so many different ways. And then when it comes to like the actual movement part, how do I incorporate relational movement into my everyday life? I honestly think it's sometimes just as simple as like telling people thank you, letting someone go first in the grocery line who looks exhausted and like whose kids are crying. You know what I mean? And like maybe some woman is like getting hassled on the street corner or something. And then you just, maybe you're too scared to even say anything. So you're like, you know what? I'm just going to stand here. I'm just going to be another body in space. That's like, I'm witnessing what's happening. Right. And then also listening, right? Like listening to the voices that you haven't necessarily always heard. So media has done a really good job of controlling what we see and what we hear and what we know. And so maybe you start to reach out to like, other avenues of information or maybe you start to watch maybe I'm just going to watch a different show and just like huh see what this experience is like or maybe I'm going to listen to a different radio station or like how can I have different input in my ears and in my eyes and how is that going to inform my worldview and also how big my world is like who is actually in it mm -hmm. I think the other side of that too like in terms of like seeing and listening and hearing others is also deep 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 introspection and like really looking at your own history and looking at your own family's history. So at Columbia College, we were lucky enough to have social and cultural foundations as the one of the first classes that we had. And there were a lot of white students that were like, what do you mean do a cultural dance for my ancestors? Like, I don't, I don't know, like the hokey, I don't know. I don't know. Like I'm like Irish, English. I, I don't, I don't know what you mean. And our professors were like, no, seriously, call your parents, like call your grandparents, go start to really, really go back. And we were getting, I mean, cultural dances from like Scotland, from like Belgium, from France. I think if people start to go back to roots and find out like, no, really, where do I come from? They might find a piece of belonging. And in that, they also might not need to appropriate other cultures, right? Because they might have their own. And they might also have more of an appreciation for like folks of color who are often seen as exotic. It's like, 
yeah, well, where'd you come from? You came from like, I don't know, the hilltops of the countryside in England. Like, what's that about? What food comes from there? What music comes from there? You know what I mean? So like also be interested in yourself. Find out your family's legacy. And it might inform how you appreciate and see other people's that are vastly different from your own. Hmm. So I've been reading that a huge conflict is that there's one side fighting for justice and recognition for a wider range of identities and another side fearful that the more we establish independent, separate identifications of people, the more we compromise the ability to be united. This came up as you were talking, you know, having deeper awareness of your own identity and how that's different and and how that's almost a way to get more united. So how have you been confronted with this conflict in your work and how do you approach it using movement? I'll say this. I think, I think sometimes we're really quick to throw a blanket of universality on top of the group because we're like really scared that if people realize that they're different, then they'll no longer want to connect. And the truth is, is that we're different. We're all different. So here's an example, like being pro-black isn't being anti-white. So there are ways to let and support people all standing from mountaintops. We don't necessarily have to be in a straight line. And I think, first of all, what is the history of people having to separate and make their own groups, right? Like if it was always happy and hunky-dory with everyone together, then people probably wouldn't have had to like hide in corners to find their safe people and like go to underground bars to be like, oh my God, are we not going to get beaten here? Right? Like what is the history of people breaking off into subgroups? I think that needs to be honored. There is a really strong history there for each and every group. So I think that's kind of step one is like, let's let people find belonging, like with whatever group they find belonging with. We all have many different sides of us. One person can be a teacher and a mother and, I don't know, Venezuelan and also maybe blind. And that person could go find belonging with any one of those groups, right? So, like, what gives you belonging, which is an extremely important thing to feel, go find that. And then if there are other groups that want to connect, great. But I don't think that forcing people to all be together is necessarily the answer. Cause I think people often like say like, we want inclusion, we want inclusion, but have you really looked at the spaces that you're including people into? I'm seeing like some show, I don't know, some like office show where it's like, we're including everybody in this meeting, but like no one will look at the food that's offered. Like no one will look at it if it's wheelchair accessible. And so then when people don't show up, they're like, well, I don't get it. I included you. You're like, yeah, but did you look at what you included me into? (laughs) Like, if this isn't a space that really considers like my complexities, then am I going to show up? And so I think because people don't see themselves reflected in the spaces that are inviting them in, they might just find their own. So I think it's really important to let people find their people, whoever their people are. And then again, like connect across that. Either let's connect through difference or let's connect through similarity. So, yeah, so I don't think it's a bad thing to have people find their safe folks and find their belonging. I think it's dangerous when people isolate. And I think it's dangerous when people don't reach out across borders. Right. That sounds like you see a balance between those two sides that seem to be really conflicting and polarizing at the moment. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's also cause it's like, well, when there is a space that's open and inclusive to all bodies, all bodies will probably show up. Yeah. You know what I mean? But <laughs> like, that will be hard. I feel like, um, if the space is made, then people will come. So if people aren't coming, then maybe just let them find whatever healing they need to find in their space and then reach across the border. It sounds like you do most work in groups of people, right? Your dance therapy groups. So I'm, while you were talking about that, I'm just really wondering what this conflict looks like in group, if you have come across that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've had uh, a lot of these conflicts. I just recently left a Cook County jail and I mean, you have 48 women who are all incarcerated on each tier. Yeah. I mean, the space is traumatizing. It's incredibly violent all of the time. And then on top of that, like everyone is forced to live on top of each other. So like these arguments and these fights are going to come up across like the lines of identity. When I was there, we encouraged accountability work and also finding the root of each group's issue, right? So like you'll start off on the surface and it's like those people sit over there and don't want to talk to us. So now we hate them. And it's like, okay, (laughs) did you ask that group if they wanted to mingle with you all or did you, or has anyone tried to, Oh no, no one's talked to each other. Okay, great. Letting people kind of talk it out and then finding like, what's really going on? Like what's at the root of all of this? And then usually what it comes down to is that folks don't feel seen, heard, or felt like it pretty much all of it usually just comes down to that. Right. But there's going to be a lot of education involved too. So we had several race riots when I was there and when we would get to the, we would sit in a circle. And when we got to the stage of kind of apology and reconciliation, for example, There was one woman I remember who was white who was exhibiting (laughs) what folks on the interwebs and other folks are calling like white tears, right? So you all don't know how hard it is for like me to be this white person here in jail and and I have black friends at home. My ex-boyfriend was Mexican and right. So like saying all these things that really have nothing to do with whatever the actual offense was. Your friends who are black aren't here and this has nothing to do with your boyfriend. And of course it sucks to be incarcerated, but folks of color are like incarcerated way more than white folks are. So that also isn't the most like empathic response to have after calling someone like a racial slur, right? So like sometimes we would have to also just give history and just teach people like, hey, this might be problematic when you say this, right? And and this is why. So yeah, so sometimes you have to kind of like invite people to wake up, but encouraging people to talk it out face to face is the only way that I work because that's, that's where the work happens. So like all of this digital media stuff, like I can hide behind something and just kind of like defecate on you. No, that's not going to happen in a therapy group. We're going to talk it out face to face and it might be really uncomfortable and it might be really painful, but the reward is going to far exceed anything that could happen from the distance of like, internet communication or did any of that make sense? Yeah, it did. And again, I'm still wondering if you had said when we get to the point of reconciliation and how do you get to the point? Do you use movement? You know, what, what gets everyone through that boundary that you've been speaking of? Yeah. 
So sometimes a movement exchange is like inviting someone to just witness someone else's pain, whatever that looks like, not being able to have sort of like the, but, but, but I did it because of this or but, 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 or I did it because of that. But like, no, let's see if you can just sit and just witness, right? Because that takes a lot (laughs) um, to sit and witness what you've done to somebody else. And if you let someone tell that full story, they're probably going to be more open to then listening to yours. And so that would be then, okay, now can you sit and witness as I show my experience of this? And again, the great thing with movement, right? It's like, there's no hierarchy. <laughs> like there's no, like one movement is like more painful than the other. Or like one movement is like more valid. It's like, nope, all movement is valid. Like it's all valid. Like all experiences are valid. So it's, we're kind of taking that away. Right. And we know how to use words to create hierarchy. Um, humans are really good at that. And so movement takes that away. So it's like, okay, can you move how this affected you? And then if you want to deepen it, has this happened before? What is the history of this movement? How long ago did that? I mean, how many years has this been happening? Right? Like you can get into people's stories that way. And then connecting through movement is like, if we were to have this dialogue, well, something as simple as like passing a movement back and forth. If we couldn't speak this conversation, but if we could just move it, what would that look like? Right. And then having other people there to kind of support. And obviously you have your rules in place, like no one can punch anybody else in the face. If we were to have this conversation through the body, what would that look like? And then just let people witness. Like witnessing is just like so much more powerful than I think I even realize sometimes. Mm. Made me think of something that we tried a lot in graduate school where one person, they'd have some kind of story written down and they would read it and someone else would move it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how you feel about that as a, as an intervention, you know, this could be used for the purpose of how helpful it is to see it on somebody else as the mm-hmm. person whose story it is. And also for the person who's moving it to feel that story of somebody else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful idea, actually trying to be like, okay, let's move empathy, right? Like if I were to write down your comment felt like a punch in the stomach And if I were to write that down and then give that to somebody and say, go ahead, you can move that. It might be like a, a, like a way more embodied experience of what could be lost in words. So I think that's, I think that's a beautiful thing, but again, just being sensitive to like, which body is telling whose story. So the person who's, who wrote the story can pick who is moving it. Maybe, yeah. or, I mean, everything is grist for the mill, right? Or it could be like, oh, you got the one person you didn't want to tell your story, like, I don't know, picks it out of a hat and like gets your story. Okay, what is that like? Maybe, and then maybe that's a really juicy part. Like maybe some person is like, you couldn't possibly embody that. Maybe you have a really good conversation out of that, you know, like who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is, it is interesting to think about who is moving whose story. So in dealing with all the differences and all the tension around this subject, people have a certain window of tolerance. And when they're going past that and they just can't hear anymore, they can't see, they can't empathize. Thinking about my own work and whenever conflict comes up in 
my groups, people storming out, people just unable to tolerate what other people are saying, unable to hear each other out. Does that happen a lot with you? Because this is, this seems like such deep conflict, you know, going back many, many years, however many years people believe that this has gone back to. Right, right, right. Like, how do you do this work? (laughs) Yeah, that's my question. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Slowly is the answer. And having lots of breaks to stop and regulate. So slowing down the conversation, whereas like maybe a normal conversation between people, um, let's even say it's a group of friends, right? That are like, you know, your group of friends is starting to like go there and you're like, oh God, we're going there. And then it like goes there and you're like, oh my God, I can't stop the train. Um, so the good thing about facilitating this is that like, you're the driver, you control how fast you go. So setting up a really, really strong entrance into like, Hey, guess what? We're about to talk about some really uncomfortable things and going as slow as the group needs to go. And like establishing everyone's like going back to Judith Herman trauma and recovery, like where is your resource place? Like find what that is before we even get into this. What's going to be your thing today? Is it going to be taking deep breaths over in that corner? Great. Is that what centers you? Wonderful. Is it going to be like closing your ears and humming a song? Okay. Is it going to be, if you can have uh, pencils or coloring pages, whatever, great. Maybe it's a book. So making sure that people have a space to retreat to is really important. What is your resourced movement that you can always come back to? And then making people come back to it over and over again that sounds intense, like make it, but yeah, like inviting people to keep coming back to it, keep coming back to it so that we get, we might get close to the window, but then as soon as we start to go up, we're like, guess what? It's resource movement time again. And like, Oh, here we are again. Just like, let's regulate, let's regulate. And I think, I feel like I have to say this, especially when it gets into conversations of privilege and like people getting really uncomfortable with having to talk about what privilege they have is usually how it goes. Like usually that's when like the guilt stuff comes up and it's important to tell those people that any amount of privilege does not detract from the level of pain and suffering. Right. So that people know, like just because I grew up in, and this is just an example, right. But like, just because I grew up with lots of money and in the suburbs doesn't mean that the rape that I experienced was any less painful. Right. So inviting people to be really careful of where they and how they aim their frustration and noticing what's coming up. And then also inviting people to like step into a place of the observer throughout the experience. So if I'm noticing that I'm starting to get really hot as someone's talking, cause I'm just like, she doesn't even know what she's talking about. She hasn't experienced pain. Right. My observer can say, Oh, look at you getting all, frustrated. Okay. And granted, this is a much higher functioning skill, right? To be able to like separate oneself and kind of like observe what's happening in the moment. Also always tending to the root. So is the root that I'm watching someone else get maybe sympathy or empathy for something that I never did? Is that what the pain is? And then attending to that part of myself. So there's a lot to watch and there's a lot to be aware of when you're facilitating conversations like this or experiences like this. But I think your best tool is going to be 
time and decelerating, Mm -hmm. slowing down and taking breaks as many as you need. If you need 50 breaks in 10 minutes, then you need 50 breaks in 10 minutes. Oh, well, that's where we're at. And so be it. Yeah. As you're talking about this and obviously so passionate about all of this and so understanding, if you don't mind me asking, how did you come about this work in this way? What led you here? Well, being lost, for one, because I have two parents from very different cultures and growing up in a town where I couldn't see myself reflected back to me in any body. There wasn't anyone else who was half Tongan, half white. There wasn't even any, I don't, I didn't know anyone else who's Polynesian besides my siblings. And, you know, I was the youngest one and they were like, get away, you're annoying. And then coming into my own queerness, I was like, what is this about? Um, And coming out at a later age, because I studying dance movement therapy that actually like opened me up to myself. And I was able to realize like, oh my God, you've been queer this whole time. You just, there was never enough space within me to realize it um, and to really like face it. And so I think it was a lot of being blindfolded and trying to like find my way and then getting probably like angry and angrier along the way. Like, why is it so hard? Like, I don't understand. I don't know. And being lost means that I also had to become a chameleon. So because I didn't see myself reflected back in spaces, I had to learn how to adjust and adjust really quickly. And I think that also made me really interested about identity and how identities relate and interact. I grew up in my house with my white mother, but I was also raised by my Jamaican godmother. So like that was also confusing. Um, And if anyone's ever seen the book, like, are you my mother? Like, that was me. I was like, who is it? Like, which one of you? Like, but I mean, also my parents are freedom fighters. So I think, you know, I was raised on like a steady diet of just like, social justice and standing up and fighting the man and all that kind of jazz. So, yeah, I think, I think injustice has always lit a fire under me and I've just let it fuel me instead of burn me down. Very nicely said. And I wanted to say thank you so much for sharing that. Yes, of course. Of course. My last question while we still have each other here What's one piece of advice you would give to anyone feeling stuck or resistant to taking more action, whether they're interested or not in doing more? Mm. I would do two things. If you know what a dream board is, (laughs) I would make a dream board for like, what is the world that you want to live in? Like, what do you want it to look like? And everything goes, everything goes. If you want like, everyone to have their own land and everyone to have childcare and everyone to love their job or whatever it is. Right. But like, what is the world you want to live in? What do you want it to look like? Move that. And then what's your intention with all of this? Right. So you said like, if someone's feeling stuck or if someone wants to do something, but doesn't really know, Like, I don't really know how, or so my intention, let's say my intention is to, okay. So let's say it's like, my intention is to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. That's like a pretty broad statement to say, right? Like, okay. So how do you 
like to be a part of the solution? Like what brings you joy? Oh, well, I really like to, these are examples. Um, I really like to, I really like to bake. I really like, I love to bake. I love to bake. Great. Well, guess what? Maybe you can bake for some folks who, whose time is really caught up doing other things that you don't have to do, but they have to do. Um, maybe you can like once a month, just like bake something, right? So like, how can you put your passions to work for you so that you don't feel like you're exhausting yourself doing something that you think you should do, but don't really want to do, right? Like Adrienne Marie Brown, who I love, she's a writer and an activist, a healer, among many other things. She talks about pleasure activism, and she talks about how the movement needs to be so enticing and it needs to be so full of pleasure that people couldn't stand to not join and be a part of it. And I love that idea because fighting for the cause and standing up and like fighting the power, like all that kind of stuff, that's great. But like, also where's our joy and how is our joy going to inform how we're involved, what we're involved in, when we're involved, right? All those things. So I think if you're stuck or feeling kind of like, oh, I don't really know what to do, take the road of your passion and take the road of your joy and let that be the road in to whatever it is that you do for the movement, for the people, no matter how small or whatever it is, because I think I'm coming back to this quote. God, I can't remember who said it. Don't do what you think you should do. Do whatever makes you come alive, because what the world needs is for people to come alive. Um, so it doesn't matter what it is, if it's knitting baskets, if it's talking to people, if it's picking flowers, I mean, anything, anything great. Let that be your contribution and let that be your way in and also let that be enough. Hmm. Great. Yeah. That was really well said. Thank you. Yeah. This was really, really great. And so informative and just like I said in the beginning, like really direct but really forgiving and like I can see you have really open mind with all this as much experience as you've had in your own life that mm. felt negative to you. I really admire your approach. Thank you. Thank you. And I love your experiential idea. So <laughs> just put that out there. I'm like, I think that's rad. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. How do you say your last name? Um, Puloka. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah, 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 it's phonetic. So it's like the U, just like ride that U. It's just cool. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Sounds good. I don't know if I ever said my name. So um, I know you see it written out, but it's pronounced Orit. Is it Orit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Where's that from? It's Hebrew. Oh, wow. That's so beautiful. I was like, I was like, Orit. And I was like, okay. Yeah, it's Orit. That's, that's awesome. Okay. I will not get that wrong from now on. <laughs> I don't expect anyone to get it right just reading it. Most people don't. Yeah. So, there's my own little obstacle with my identity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you have to explain it every time. Every yep. single time. Yep. Every single time. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, what's that from? And says, what like, does it mean? Yep. See, you have, you like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's your story. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And, Hopefully we run into each other again at another conference or I don't know if you're going to um, San, Antonio. San Antonio. Yeah, I'll be there. How about you? Okay. Yes, I will. Awesome. So I will see you there. Okay. 
looking forward All right, to it. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.